you're listening to the podcast edition of One Love, One Planet. And good morning and welcome to One Love, One Planet with me, Penny Southgate. And now over to Lindley Lewis, who is going to tell us all about the Blue Earth Summit, which is an event taking place in Bristol next week. The Blue Earth Summit sort of came about through a combination of, I suppose, factors and sort of a, a range of different personal experiences that we've had. So I think, my, you know, my background of before getting involved in the Blue Earth Summit, of which I'm one of three founders, I was uh, the, the company behind it is Wavelength and which through its history has produced a, a surf magazine, um, but has also kind of through COVID, um, we split and sort of by by chance and kind of by hook or crook, we ended up getting into live events. We ran a drive-in cinema uh, in North Cornwall. It was over the sea and it was looking at the landscapes and we did a, um, you know, I was looking at the surf and we did a opening cinema night with Blue Juice. It was 20 years since Blue Juice got reproduced all got you know got got delivered and we got the director down for that we got Sean Pertwee down and it was just a lot of fun and we sort of realized then that hey this live event game is great and that opening you know that summer COVID was was pretty tough um for a you know huge variety of reasons and actually be able to do something that gen- was generating income <laughs> making people happy and putting on a really good you know a really good show for people so we sort of finished that summer feeling really optimistic about what sort of events we as an organization could do. And then for a while, we had been talking with different event companies and organizations about how Wavelength could bring a, a, a slightly deeper experience to a more standardized event. So we had looked at different ideas of how we could, you know, get people together in the mountains so they could go skiing and, and it could still be a business event that they would be skiing or how we could bring together a surf experience, but, you know, can kind of be alongside a business event. And it was really sort of, so I suppose it was a bit of that as a background, we'd always had those ideas. And then, yeah, summer, su- summer with a successful event under our belt, we just were kind of working out what, you know, what, what the future held, what different events we could do. And that was when just the penny dropped that, or maybe we could com- combine an event that, you know, talks about the sort of showcases the businesses that we were working with who are making um, a kind of sustainable impact, you know, sort of in that, in that B Corp space, combine it with the outdoors, get a lot of people down to the same area. The Bristol wave had just opened. So we thought Bristol's a great city for it. So actually all the kind of, pieces just started to fall into um, place that we've got a location where um, the planet is hugely important and, you know, green credentials uh, are massive and it is a very important part of people's lives. And one of the phrases that we've used is connected by blue thread, which is (laughs) something that we came up with, but just, you know, that sort of, uh, uh, do you like going in the outdoors? Because you just know that if you meet someone who, is involved in an industry similar to you but actually has those kind of like similar passions that you have of getting into the outdoors there's going to be a much deeper connection there you know and it happens quite regularly a bit you know large corporations you'll get an adventurer on stage talking about the face of adversity and that kind of inspires the business audience to um you know kind of relate to that uh through the challenges that they're kind of receiving every every day and we wanted to a kind of instill that sort of spirit but also 
um, be just that general outdoors, that kind of passion and, and love for the outdoors as a, from a kind of protectionist perspective to just instill that and get people along that, that naturally feel that they want to protect the outdoors because they love it. They love being outside in nature. They love, um, using the outdoor facilities, whether going surfing, cycling, running, walking, or, you know, into wildlife or, um, into open spaces. And it's taking that kind of outdoor spirit, that outdoor passion and using that in a, in a positive way to actually channel how people are thinking about business practice. So we went for it and we sort of combined all those different elements, launched the Blue Earth Summit last year. Um, and it was hugely popular. And um, off that, you know, off that concept, um, you know, we're rolling it out now. This, uh, this is its second year. We've gone for a, a day longer this year. Uh, so it's a three-day event. The first two days are at the Prop Yard, um, which is um, on Feeder Lane. So kind of a post-industrial event space. It's great, really interest. you know, really, really great space. And we're moving there for the first time this year. So, you know, within that, we've got one main stage uh, where we host kind of short TED, TED Talk style keynotes. So going to be 15 minutes each and roll those through the day. Um, one large stage, which is called the Campfire Stage for kind of in-depth panel discussions. Um, we've got an exhibition hall where we're going to have about 25 different exhibitors with a small Q&A stage. We have this other element called Pitch Tent, um, which is an application process. And we put the, the winners on, on stage um, in three different categories. One in Pitch Tent Business, so that's sustainable impact business ideas. Um, the other category is community projects. So if you're running a community project, which you think can make a significant which can make a significant impact. Uh, thirdly, adventure, if you're going planning a kind of large scale adventure with a purpose. Um, so we've been getting applications for those throughout the year as well. And lounge, um, we've got a separate area for the speakers within that. And then there's a huge immersive outdoor space where they've got a bar, two stretch tents, where we're also hosting um, workspaces, workshops and different roundtable sessions. Um, and then within that, we've also got different brands doing sampling. So quite fun. But on the, the Tuesday, Future of Protein, is it bugs? You know, so there's a company called Yumbug who are coming down and they're bringing um, processed crickets and, <laughs> and all sorts of other bugs to the market to provide a sustainable protein alternative. So, you know, people get a chance. It makes, does it make your stomach turn? Or is it actually, you know, is this a, a more viable alternative to kind of a plant-based diet in order to make sure you can still get your nutritional values. So a few little things like that going on, which will be, which are quite fun. And then, um, yeah. And then, the, and then the third day is out at the Bristol wave and the day at the Bristol wave, people can surf, they go running, they go for kind of nature walks. Uh, they can go cycling. We're even taking them off to go rock climbing in the Avon Gorge through one of our partners, Rab. So really experiential day. Um, so yeah, a, re a really kind of rich, full content event with loads of different stuff going on, covering a huge range of topics. And, yeah, it's just very, you know, really interesting and great to be involved in, really. Generally, I hate the term networking, but it is all about connecting people and um, putting, you know, creating that market between business owners and people that 
support businesses, financial institutions. We have a bursary program, which we open up um, to make sure that we're really a, making sure that the audience is sort of as inclusive as possible, but also that we're able to get people in from outside the business community, say the charity sectors. Um, you know, we've got the sort of people I've been getting in touch with recently, I don't know, well and dolphin conservation, they'll be there, Bristol Zoo, Eden Project, um, Hubbub, we're plastic cleaning we're obviously partnered up with surface against sewage we're working with a black and green um organization um so there's huge you know that charity sector is relevant from a case of the actually quite often these are the organizations that are really pushing um that industry on the on the front line um but also we want to make sure that we're getting the creatives in the room as well so contributors we want to get artists um along uh people in the creative industries. And I think the kind of the, the interest and the reason for having those along is that we quite often feel that the, the fringe quite often alters the mainstream. Yeah. So, you know, and you can see that just in the, the, you know, the sort of partners that are involved with the event and that are getting in touch with us now. Last year, there's a lot of, you know, the, the organizations now are the, that are wanting to get involved with the event. For example, this year we've got Accenture huge global corporation um want uh, are one of the event partners <clears throat> as our visa and that i think is because all the you know the fresh ideas they come from the 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 more kind of edgy fringe based businesses and societies and and charities and communities and then they're the ones that are really pushing the boundaries and actually they come up with a lot of the solutions that then need to alter the kind of the bigger marketplace and that's what we see where business has a role to play in this whole, you know, broader scope of climate yeah. <laughs> um, crisis and climate emergency. You know, not all businesses are, are doing good, but the ones that are, they need to be champions, and then they also need to be like coming up with sustainable solutions for bigger business as well, because ultimately it all needs to be aligned. And then we also have a bursary scheme as well. So if you're outside of the business community or sitting and thinking, I really want to do more in that space, but I can't, you know, just, I, I don't know where to start, or I really want to meet businesses to, you know, possibly for a career change, or I work for a charity, how can I get into that? Um, yeah, we've, we, you know, we're running a bursary scheme and it's just a case of applying online. Um, there's a link on the website. Applications for that are going to close the sort of week before the, the event starts. I think that definitely the, the ambition for the event 100% is to make it just a really important part of the Bristol calendar. Um, you know, make, make, it a, make it an event that can be championed, make it an event that is, is held in a venue, but actually spills out into the city and brings lots of people to the event and um, brings people from overseas to visit the amazing city and, and see it. And, you know, yeah, so, and throughout the year as well, we host kind of smaller events. So the, in April, uh, March this year, we hosted a kind of opening drinks at the, the Bristol Patagonia store as a kind of kickoff and a bit of a get back together. We did the same thing in London. So everyone who gets a ticket gets invited to those little events year round as well. Just And it's just a really nice way to kind of keep the community together and, and keep binding everyone.
extract coming up from past One Love, One Planet is where we talked about the Conham River Park bathing campaign. Lots of people swim around there and there is currently a campaign to get the river designated bathing status. Um, There are only two other rivers with this status in the UK. So... Um, Becca Blees and Eva Perrin came along to the studio to talk about it and in this next extract Eva is talking about her work to monitor the health of the river. Well over the last two summers we've been um, actually collaborating sort of kind of ironically I suppose but I think it works really well we've been collaborating with Wessex Water who have been uh, funding our um, sampling regime so we we sort of we go there uh, once a week take a sample and we'll drive it to the um they have like an accredited water sampling laboratory kind of thing and they'll they'll send us a list of all of these parameters um that goes way above and beyond what we would be monitoring um if it was to be a designated bathing site um but it does include those parameters which are um specifically e coli and enterococci so they're uh, two types of pathogenic bacteria so they're the types of bacteria that would make you ill if you were to ingest them mm-hmm. and they're generally associated with um coming from things like untreated sewage um so that's something that we've been doing for the last couple of years um and we share that information uh, every time we we kind of we get the results back we uh, that all goes through social media um so someone's interested has just learned about this place yeah yeah yeah. i want to go and swim there yeah where do they look Mm -hmm. uh yeah so we've got uh social medias we're at conum bathing yeah or there's conumbathing.co.uk it's our website Um, and um yeah so so that's sort of been ongoing. And then uh, the last sort of month or so, um, as part of my PhD, I mentioned that I'm looking at water quality in rivers. And one of my focuses uh, is on developing new kind of sensing technologies. So things that can sense um, changes specifically in the bacterial activity of the river. Um, and so I've, as part of my PhD, I've deployed a sensor down near Conum. And that's giving us real-time data. So one of the really important things is that we're having not just a snapshot once a week uh, retrospectively of what the river looked like a few days ago or a week ago, but we're actually having a, you know, a real-time idea of how the river looks. And I like to kind of refer to it as a bit of a heartbeat. You know, you can, you oh, can see this. Mm. You, you know, you look at the I data and you can see it changes <laughs> from day to night. Yeah. It changes from, like, week to week. And it's really amazing because you get an idea of what this baseline you know, activity looks like inside mm-hmm. the river. There's so much going on under the water and, you know, whether that's, you know, uh, it changes from day to night because the light changes and so that changes the photosynthetic activity of the algae and the, um, you know, the activity of the bacteria. Um, the tide comes in and out and you can see all of these lovely ebbs and flows and it gives you a really lovely picture of, of what it looks like. And oh, it sounds wonderful. <laughs> yeah. PhD sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really, really nice to, to see and... Our, our view is that we can publish this information in real time on mm. our website and so people can log on and look and, and sort of check on the river and, and see how it's doing, which I think you know would be a really just, great thing. What you've just made me think of is NASA published some data on the carbon dioxide cycle of the Earth. I don't mm-hmm. know whether you've ever seen Absolutely, it. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, it's, it's very similar it's to beautiful. that. It's yeah, like yeah. watching the Earth breathe. That's, a, is, yeah. that's it's exactly abs- it. It what is we're, fantastic. Absolutely, and that's kind of what we're looking at. It, we're looking at the you know the river breathing in a way. Oh. It's um, you know So we look at um, parameters like dissolved oxygen 
concentration mm -hmm. in the river. Um, and that all comes from, you know, this, this really fine balance between the photosynthetic activity of the algae and the plants producing oxygen and then the, uh, you know, the respiration activity of the bacteria, which are producing carbon dioxide and, and using that oxygen. And so, you know, there's a really, really fine balance. And uh, what we're hoping to find with the sensor is we want to be able to pick up any changes in this balance and in this kind of heartbeat um, and the breathing, you know, which might happen as a result of the input of pollution from humans, so things like sewage. And, and also, presumably, you, you could get a picture from say, the river in Ilkley, to give you a picture of a, a healthy river and then have a look at and contrast in one that's known to be... Mm. Absolutely. You know, ...very polluted, which yeah. could give you a really good... Uh, the, the difference between the two. Absolutely, and that's kind of, you know, the dream, really, and, and what we sh should in my view as you know not only local councils but as a, as an internet as a national government we should be funding uh, a network of, mm. of real time water quality monitoring sites on rivers all across the country you know that's good rivers bad rivers medium rivers you know everything that we will have a view then of of what all of our rivers look like in the UK and and we can kind of bring all of that data together and that would be so much more useful than going out once every 3 years and taking yeah. a sample driving it to a lab yeah. and then you know a few weeks later, seeing what it Absolutely. looked like, you know. We're going to be hearing from Elizabeth Meisen, who is a journalist who writes for the Bristol Cable and the Byline Times and various other publications as well um, and she came onto the show to talk about the problem of communicating climate in the press in our mainstream press and how there is so much climate denialism and delayism and dismissal you can see it recently in the heatwave coverage in a really clear way that um, we know that uh, climate change makes, you know, scientists have been telling us for a very long time, but they've been saying it a lot recently, that climate change will make a heat wave or the two heat waves, actually, that we've had in the last month or so, um, say, let's say, for example, 100 times more likely. So we know that whether or not we can directly link climate change to one individual event, we know that it makes those kinds of once-in-a-lifetime events far more likely. So we can say without doubt that the heat waves we just experienced are linked to climate change. Now, what a lot of papers will do is they will report on the heat wave, but they'll report on, you know, ice cream sales going up, mm. or they will report on one individual fire that happened because of the heat wave, they, and they will not mention climate change. So we are kind of dismissing climate change and taking climate change out of the equation. Mm. Um, and the frequency with which this happens is really, you know, really quite, I would say, sinister, that, you know, there are editors who will not, uh, for whatever reason, acknowledge that these things are happening because of climate change. And I think that it's, you know, not everything is down to what the media does, of course. Everybody's got their own reasons for uh, thinking what they think and saying what they say. But I think it's a huge problem in the UK um, for people being willing to act because they are not seeing the level of media coverage and the clarity of media coverage that they need to see. Absolutely. In, <clears throat> in part of this extract, we also hear from... Elena Wood in the States talking about the problems with TikTok and climate communication. 
My name is Elena Wood. I'm a sustainability scientist and climate communicator based in the United States, and I use the app TikTok to discuss climate change under the username The Garbage Queen. It's become abundantly clear to me that TikTok is censoring climate-related content, and that's starting to become a problem. Climate scientists and activists like myself routinely have their content banned due to it violating TikTok's community guidelines, even though it actually doesn't. And blatant climate misinformation, whether it be climate denial or climate doom, rarely gets taken down. There are two main reasons why this seems to be happening, and TikTok has yet to address either of them. One way climate content gets taken down is by users mass reporting videos, comments, and accounts. If something on the app is reported enough times, it will get taken down. It doesn't matter if it violates community guidelines or not. That's just the way the reporting system works because it's run by an AI, so a real person rarely reviews violations. Sometimes users are able to get their content back up, but even then their accounts remain in trouble. My account, for example, is on the verge of being permanently banned, even though I've gotten every video and comment reported back up. The other reason why climate content gets taken down on TikTok is because TikTok actively suppresses content it deems is too political. And unfortunately, climate falls into that category. This is all quite troublesome because TikTok is one of the largest social media platforms and most young people nowadays look to social media for news. When experts have their content taken down or their views suppressed, it actively impacts what news about climate change the public sees. And in the case of TikTok, that means climate denial and climate doom is what the public sees. Once that misinformation goes viral, it's quite difficult for experts to debunk it because the damage is already done. The algorithm won't push the debunks to them since they've interacted with misinformation. But I don't believe this is a lost cause. There are two ways TikTok has helped address other forms of misinformation, and I believe the same can work for climate. During the start of the pandemic, TikTok helped get doctors and public health officials verified, or at least help them not get their content taken down. And I believe it's time for TikTok to do the same for climate scientists and activists. TikTok can also update their community guidelines to include climate misinformation as a violation like they do with COVID and election misinformation. I believe the public deserves to know the truth about climate science, policy, and solution. And social media platforms like TikTok need to be held responsible for the role they're playing in spreading climate misinformation. So... There you go. There's, I think there's a lot that's relevant to what you're saying. Absolutely, yeah. I thought that was really interesting. Um, and I think that you know, part of the problem with many social media platforms is that they don't release the information on what they do with their algorithm. I think that there are people um, like that lady there that, you know, that can work it out if they're quite active on the platform and you can see how these things are happening. Um, but you know, they, they should be far more transparent about that because we can see the results of what's happening with misinformation. Mm. And I thought that was brilliant, actually, the, the suggestion that you know, we really need to add climate misinformation to a violation uh, policy list and we also need to make sure that climate scientists and activists specific activists who are you know reliable and who are working with climate scientists should be verified absolutely that verification mm. absolutely so Mel melanie phillips wouldn't have it well you'd <laughs> they, hope not you'd hope not well yeah absolutely And now we're going to be hearing from Lola Tinsley and Mary Rose Clark, who came on to talk about eco-anxiety, which I know an awful lot of people are going through right now. And in fact, that particular podcast 
has been downloaded far more than any of the others. So it just shows how much it, it's such, such an important subject for people. I asked them if they had any thoughts or ideas about how best people could deal with eco-anxiety or if there are, were ways of helping people feel more positive. Um, I like the emphasis on local, like try and settle, if you can, if you're settled somewhere, to try and get involved with something local and don't think about saving the world, think about saving your little corner of it and the more we build local power the more we can start to just not, well kind of maybe ignore like government that isn't doing anything, ignore people that don't care and just think, okay well you're not I'm not going to even factor you in to my plan for the future, I'm just going to we're just going to build power locally. Before we came on air, actually, this reminds me, we were talking about the business of people feeling guilty because they don't do enough. Um, and, Lol, you were saying something about um, people shouldn't necessarily have to feel guilty because they're just part of this thing. Could you just say a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, I was just saying that, like, the more we emphasise the fact that we're part of nature and not just connected to nature, but part of nature and everything we do is natural because we're natural beings, the more we emphasise that, the less guilty I think we should feel because the idea of humans being guilty because we haven't done enough for the planet comes from an image of ourselves as superior to the planet, superior to natural other natural beings and therefore it's a sort of Christian idea of we're wardens of the earth and we need to look after the earth. And now we feel guilty for failing in that duty. But if we see ourselves more as what we are, which is animals, which is natural, we, we react to things, we behave the way we've adapted to behave. If we see ourselves more in that light, then I think it gets rid of some of the guilt that we yeah. feel. Mary Rose, what's... I think all of these responses are really natural and that we need... Um, we need to come together to support ourselves to be able to actually feel what we're feeling a lot more, actually. Right. Right. And, and for that to be held in a, in a safe and contained way with other people um, who, who understand. Or other, yeah, other people who are, who are willing to show up and, and be with those really difficult feelings that we're having. Um, that we're not going to be able to respond appropriately um, and effectively unless we're actually able to sit with the reality. Uh, and so that's a, that's a huge part of um, how, how we're going to be able to you know, shift a lot of things very quickly, I think, is by coming together and allow, allowing ourselves to be really human, allowing ourselves mm. to feel our distress, mm. but also feel our love for the earth, um, you know, to feel our sadness and to feel our grief and to connect, you know, with the, the joy that we have maybe when we're, like, when we hear a bird sing, like we were talking about earlier. Mm. Um, and for me, like, how I work with, with these ceilings is, A, by being able to talk to other people about them, mm -hmm. but, B, by really um, going back to the earth to be able to... Um, support myself to act for the earth like if I really want my um, my life to support the future life on earth 
then I have to um, really be able to to go and show up and take refuge in that which I'm trying to support. Um, yeah. Lol, you're nodding there. Yeah, I just like the idea to take refuge in what you're trying to support and, like, yeah, using your... Like you were saying about solar punk, I don't know, use your imagination of what we can... where we can mm. live and try and live there in your head already. <laughs> like, it's nice. Just wanted to say that the things that Mary Rose was saying reminded me of uh, something I read by... Um, I think... I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right. I'm really sorry. Um, Professor Amir Srinivasan. Um, and it was basically just about... You were saying that people's feelings are being psychopathologized and in a way it kind of like invalidates our feelings um and what Srinivasan talks about is like political anger and how we're often told off for being angry because it's you know mm. unproductive or it's it's bitter or whatever and she says actually anger is an appropriate reaction to the response that you're in mm-hmm. and so you should be angry and your anger should be validated and mm. and it's the same thing i think anxiety and all of these things should be validated by institutions and we, they should be treated with it's about respect and then once those feelings are respected that's when we might be able to let them go but they have to be respected mm. first so w- the more you're validated by each other and by institutions the better we feel and it just reminded me of that article and i love the article uh, the aptness of anger it's called so mm. i suppose just to just to say that you know i really i really get how scary this is and i really get that uh, how helpless you can feel and um and i want to say that you know do not hesitate to reach out for support um whether you can find it in friends and family whether you can find it in professionals if you need it it's nothing to be ashamed of um and that you know we in 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 times of um great struggle like we need to be able to um lean on each other and um and and I know as a young person and young people out there how hard it is to um, begin to digest this information and make a plan for your future and and do all these different things um, that we can uh, you know what we do matters what you do matters and um, and and I want you to know that that you 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 matter what you do matters and and you can get the support that you need find the support that you need yeah Next week, I'm going to be talking to Ellie Young from the States, who is right now producing an online platform called Common Action, which is all about active hope. It's about positive solutions and sharing information and knowledge. So it could be an incredibly useful resource and place to go in the future if you want to do something to help our planet. So if you're interested in that, do tune in. So until next week, bye-bye. <laughs>